Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Overdue Rentals Podcast, the show where we're talking about films that people just don't give enough attention to anymore. I say anymore because these things are films that could have been really big box office blockbusters that everybody talked about when they came out. I just had a discussion with my brother today when he found out his wife never saw Misery. And I'm like, how have you never seen Misery? That was the biggest thing in the world. Stuff like that. Or maybe they were smaller films that, you know, just people for some reason didn't get enough attention bought onto them, so people didn't see them. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes, and I have a, a slight admission to make on my own. I, too, have not seen Misery. That's bullshit. Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. And it's never been because lack of interest. It's just one of those things that I've always meant to check off the list. But a small little rabbit hole before we get too deep into anything. Just honestly especially with something like something adapted off of a work of Stephen King or someone, the question always comes up. Do I want to read it beforehand and then experience the film? Or do I want to go the other way? And then just executive indecision kicks in. And also I just have a watch list of long things to cover anyway, but misery might actually be a good one for us to throw on here. Uh, I'm sorry, everybody listening. We're going to have to cancel the show and retool because I am in shock oh well you know it was a good run you know 60 episodes i will will say one other thing before we get into the meat of what really we're here for today though because i don't want to waste too much time diversions i love this like welcome to the rabbit hole hour (laughs) but i you know i think we talked about this before i've i've come to the point when i was much younger where i've decided that i'm no longer going to read books that are that i know could be made into films or that I haven't read yet that have films made, because I find that I enjoy both the book and the film more if I see the film first and then read it. Because I would read the book and go, oh, they did this wrong. Whereas if I see the film, I'll go like, that was great. Oh, I read, oh my God, all the stuff they did to make that into a film, that's amazing. So I, 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 take the, I, would, I would just watch the movie if I were you. And I, then think, the I think this needs to be a bonus episode, especially just because of that. This is one of those subjects where we could really go deep into the weeds, <laughs> yes. but we're not going to do that today. Yes. But if you do want to go deep into our catalog, you can find it wherever you ethically source your podcast. We'll do that spiel again later. But I just like to I like to mention it before and after because we're overdue rentals. And there's probably some episodes out there that you're overdue to listen to. Yeah. But, and for right now, though, we should oh. get into talking to our guest, who is the cinematographer, director of photography, however, however you want to call it, Mr. Zach Kupperstein who has shot the brand new film coming out on was it September 9th, I believe, Barbarian, yes. which uh, I will say now, we, we very specifically have no spoilers in there, but make sure if you're listening now, pause and go back and look at the description of this episode because we'll put a time code in for one little thing that I may think you may want to skip past if you haven't seen the movie yet. But Zach's also here to talk about because he was also the director of photography on uh, a little more indie horror film called The Eyes of My Mother, which I think is, first of all, again, Barbarian, if you're going to see it, just think about it as somebody rents out an Airbnb, finds out they didn't rent what they thought. I'm going to leave it at that. The Eyes Based of My Mother. Sorry? Based on a true story. Based on a true Could very well be. We'll see. <laughs> but The Eyes of My Mother, on the other hand, is a, ooh, I don't know, Mike, how would you describe The Eyes of My Mother? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I've never really met your mother, so I can't really say anything on that respect. However, the film, The Eyes of My Mother, uh, I guess I would describe it as an, it's definitely indie horror. It's, it, it, it's basically the lifespan of a young woman from childhood to adulthood and the events that occur after a traumatic incident sort of awakens something in her. And I think that's the best like sort of glossed over summary that I can give. I mean, obviously we'll dig deeper when we yes. get into our actual discussion segment, but I think that's the best way to put it. And, oh, I, I cannot wait to yeah, talk about yeah, this movie. Yeah, and we'll talk about it after, but before we before we just get Zach in here, I, I, I do have to say though that, you know, and if you've seen it, you know, if you look up it, you know, beautiful, gorgeous black and white movie. Oh. That this is just like, you know what? We'll talk, we'll talk about it. Let's get Zach in here. Yes, Zach Cooperstein. Welcome to the Overdue Rentals Rental Counter. And please help yourself to almost expired milk duds. Thank you again for joining us. And um, we do want to jump right into it because I, a lot of people are very excited 
for Barbarian coming out. And, and I have to wonder when you join on to projects like this, do you get a vision in your head of what you want to do immediately from when you read the script or do you wait until you go through it with the team to kind of make those decisions? Yeah, usually there's like an initial uh, inkling I have about something and, and I kind of picture something in my brain, but uh, that all changes pretty quickly as soon as I start talking with the director. Um, and I, I find those conversations to be a lot more valuable than whatever I come up with. And that's why I'm not a director. You know, I want to know what somebody else wants to do and try to make that better. Um, so a lot of my, my prep process is asking a lot of questions and just trying to soak up as much as I can from the director. Um, and try to not let my initial uh, biases, you know, guide uh, whatever we're going to be doing. And then as we go, of course, I have a taste and like a style and that I will impose in inevitably, but um, it's really, uh, I, I try to be as receptive and open as possible to whatever the director wants to do. And usually the best work comes out of that. I get more inspired by what they say and their ideas uh, than whatever I was thinking to begin with. So Now, obviously, uh, as I had creepily hinted at, through my own visual representation earlier, people listening to the podcast won't, won't get this. Yeah. I am one of the people that is excited for Barbarian to come out because unfortunately I have not seen it yet. However, oh. just that trailer alone sold <laughs> me on this film and then discovering that Zach Kreger was directing it. And, and wrote then, it. Wait, where do I, and wrote it. And I was like, wait, where do I know that name? And then I look it up, it's like, wow, whitest kids you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> What's really cool about that is this just seems like another one of those connections that horror and comedy seem to go really hand in hand. Like even with the most recent season of uh, uh, Barry, like people were saying Bill Hader needs to direct a horror movie. And I was just wondering what your take is on why those two subjects seem to mesh so well together, especially on the creative end. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, they're both, they both have genre elements that are uh, things that you can you can work with there's like an existing canon of uh of style that exists for comedy and for horror and tropes that you can take advantage of or play off of or break the rules of um so i imagine that if somebody's interested in genre bending um it's good to kind of start with a genre a known genre and and push the limits of that and i think zach does that really well and uh, I haven't watched a lot of Whitest Kids You Know, but from what I understand, it's, it's you know, pushing the boundaries of what counts as comedy and what's, you know, what's funny and what's uh, just awkward. And then uh, in Barbarian, it's pushing the boundaries of horror as well. And, and there are funny moments in it. Um, and I think that adds a lot to it. Uh, people can be both scared and get a laugh out of an awkward moment or a laugh out of just an absurd moment. I also really love how this tra that trailer is cut, though, because yeah. it is it is so hard. It's, it, this is another one of those uh, line blurring moments where it's really hard to do a horror trailer. It's really hard to do a comedy trailer, too, yeah. because these are both genres where the moments are really what people latch on to. And if you really want to just do a we want to sell this movie to the hilt sort of approach, you have to ruin some of those things. And totally. even if it's just like a quick glimpse of something. This trailer, I think I know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. Great. And that's I impressive. like that. I yeah. that that is something that's just it is a it is a lure for me. A hundred percent. Yeah, I was really worried about that when before the trailer came out that it was gonna give away too much and it it delivers just the right amount and it gets, sets it up in just the right way and yeah i'm pretty excited about that my concern was like you said though like it, it is kind of hard to sell a movie when you don't tell people what what they're going to be in for but their their movie experience is going to be better as a result so well see, that's always our argument because i like i i don't like watching trailers if i don't have to i don't read up on movies i'm the kind of person that would like to go to a movie and realize it's something completely opposite of what it was being sold to me i want to be surprised I yeah. want to be, you know, not, not being, I always go back to, I think it was Shutter Island. And I think it's happened to a lot of people, but it's like, you know, you watch the trailer of Shutter Island and like, granted, there are other things in there that you can pull away from it, but it's like, uh, I, I know the ending of the movie already. Yeah. <laughs> like, thank, thanks, thanks people who cut that trailer. Right. Although <laughs> I will argue that even knowing what happens in Shutter Island, because I read the book before seeing the movie, knowing what happens, that does still enrich that movie for, repeated viewings because you start to pick up on everything being put right in front of you yeah. and like even just that one cut in uh 
I, I there was one scene where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is in, in, interrogating like the the staff, and there's just that one cut to a certain person at the certain time. That's like, oh, so if I was a new viewer, I would not know that that was a nice big fat clue. Yeah, and it's still satisfying that way, right? Even if you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But more more importantly, I want to go back to Barbarian because I'm interested in the idea that and again. Obviously, it's not an entire movie shot in very closed off spaces, but there's going to be points of it where there's a lot that's going to be. And granted, if it's a set, doesn't necessarily mean there's not a wall that can be removed, but it's meant to feel claustrophobic in certain points. And I'm wondering what kind of work has to go into kind of not just setting the shots up, but not, you know, it's not just for the way it looks in the frame, but then the lighting portion of it, too, must be really tough to kind of pull that off. Yeah, absolutely. I, I should first ask, Matt, you've seen the movie, right? I have not actually seen the movie yet either, unfortunately. Okay. What happened was the only option I had to see it, I was forced to stay in the office. I'm not going to see it uh, until next week on Wednesday. Okay, no worries. Uh, <laughs> so do you want spoilers? Should I avoid spoilers? Is that the... Avoid, I would avoid major spoilers, I would say, yeah. But, you know, if there's something you want to talk about, I would say, I don't know, Mike, how you feel about it. I would say go for it. <laughs> I guess we're gonna have to go. I mean, if, no, if no major spoilers. I would say because people want to. We want people to listen to it who haven't seen it yet. I guess yeah. there's a way to tiptoe around it. Sure, exactly. But, yeah. you know. Okay, so uh, like you said, Matt, there's uh, some tight spaces uh, which are alluded to in the trailer, so it's not giving anything away. And uh, there, there's sort of this tunnel set that uh, had to be constructed, and uh, we felt like it had to be as small as it needed to be to make it look small. There's not really a way around that. Um, so getting the camera in there was hard and it, uh, operating the camera in those tight spaces was tricky and it, it led to, um, different ways of handheld operating. We used an ergo rig for a lot of it instead of an easy rig. Cause the easy rig has like a, a sort of overhead arm thing. Mm. Uh, the ergo rig was a lot smaller and for underslung stuff, uh, it's kind of great for that. Um, we took a part of that and rigged it to a little tiny skateboard we made, like a piece of wood with some casters on the bottom, so that we could do really low angle handheld kind of movement uh, in the in the tunnel. Um, and then we did, I don't think we did any steady cam in the tunnel, but we used a gimbal in there, but very minimally, because even that felt a little too bulky in that space. Um, but you're right, there's a lot of running around in there and that uh, that was tough to kind of keep up with the actors. If, if they're running at full speed, and I've got the camera on my shoulder, uh, then running running after them was a little dangerous at times. Uh, but I had an awesome grip team spotting me and uh, really very supportive in terms of getting the camera into tight spaces throughout the project. Um, and then lighting wise in the in the tunnels there, there's no motivation for light in there. It's totally pitch black, um, but uh, the characters have at different times uh, flashlight or a phone light or something like that. Um, so we just used that naturally. And uh, whenever they were facing the camera, the gaffer was right behind me with a little um, sort of disc light. I don't remember the name of it, but it was an LED panel basically uh, that he built a little top hat on with a cap and could kind of hit the wall in the right way at the right time, depending on which way their flashlight was pointing. But we also realized if they turn away from the camera, that light had to turn off. And that happened pretty often where it was facing camera, turning away these kind of quick moves. Uh, so he was really on top of keeping track of the blocking, watching where the flashlight was going and supplementing just a little bit. We did experiment early on with like LED strips kind of hidden in the battens of the tunnel um, mm. and maybe a backlight down at the end, but it just looked contrived and fake. So we were like, mix it and it's better. Well, I mean, just even the fact you thought of it, because that's, and I think it's a funny thing. Cause I think a lot of, again, general viewers, you know, whether they know enough about what goes into the art of cinematography or not, they don't think that anybody's streaming LED lights up, even as a test, you know, they think that like, oh, they're probably better than that. It's like, no, but you got to do what you got to do. And if that's what makes, I mean, I know it didn't work in this case, but if that's what makes it, we're still going to do it. Totally. Yeah. And, and I think a huge part of it was also, we chose to shoot on the Sony Venice, which you could shoot at 2,500 or 5,000 ISO. And it performed really well in low light, um, had no problems with it. So I could kind of, you know, uh, make the most out of what little was coming out of the flashlight. Does it feel also, I, that also makes me think about the idea that granted we've done, you know, we've advanced so much as a society, technology, whatever it is, that 
sometimes you may even think like, I'm not going to be able to be inventive enough as people were back in the day. Like, I know we still don't know how Kubrick did the steady cam shot before there was steady cam and paths of glory, uh, you know, or like thinking about the idea of Sam Raimi and his team making up all this stuff on the evil dead sets that are now kind of, you know, which you could be, again, the idea of putting something on a skateboard is similar at this point. Do you feel that there's still room for you know innovation like that? Or you find yourself doing it yourself? It's like, nobody's thought about this. Nobody's done this or nobody taught me this. And I just thought it up and here I go. Yeah, I mean, I hope there's room. That's that's the whole, that's, I don't know. <laughs> that's the whole thing for me. Uh, that every day is a, is a moment of innovation and trying to find a different way of doing something. And uh, yeah, I feel like it's constant problem solving. And there's, uh, even if there was like a, an existing solution to move the camera a particular way or capture a particular moment. Uh, it's often more expensive than one can afford and you have to find like the lower budget version of whatever that is. So it might be like, okay, well, I have, uh, I'm not solving this problem for the first time, but I'm finding uh, a way to kind of cheat around what I know exists out there. So it's, it can be like researching different ways of, I don't know, su supporting rigging, moving the camera around and then finding like, well, if I, Put a piece of pipe here we can kind of build a similar thing um, that does the job so um yeah i think it's constant innovation and i uh, i'm trying to think of a moment in the film that i can point to that isn't a spoiler <laughs> moment that's the that's the tough thing but um there yeah constantly we were trying to find fun ways to to move the camera and and put it in unusual places uh Kind of thing. There's a, I mean, I guess there's an overhead shot in the tunnel that uh, because it was a set, we were able to pop out the top of the set and uh, have the camera sort of mounted on a rig over the set, but then turn, uh, not tilting up to top to bottom, but panning left to right, looking down and kind of down the length of the hall uh, as one of the characters moves down the hall below. Um, so even in a very tight space by Yes, expanding and popping out the top and you know building a rig, we were able to uh, achieve a shot like that. Um, that I don't know if anybody's done exactly that. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. These are the sort of stories that we love to get on overdue rentals because I, I know I'm I myself, and I'm sure Matt can attest to this as well. It's just really cool hearing like the ingenuity that goes into some of this stuff, where obviously. Barbarian is is more of a I would say mid to lower budget film is what it looks like it looks like a very run and gun sort of lean and hungry movie versus you know 200 million dollars on a back lot in Atlanta where you can you can fake anything in a Best Buy parking lot yeah and I love just hearing those stories of like solutions and and even just approaches of well you know what we've got this and this let's see if it'll do that yeah, totally. I mean, I should say we we shot in Bulgaria and the film takes place in Detroit. I don't know if uh, you guys were aware of that, but the uh, so everything is kind of built from scratch for the film. So we didn't exactly have an existing backlot, but there was uh, a neighborhood that was built from scratch uh, on a field in a, on a farm. Um, and that became our Detroit neighborhood for all of the exterior surrounding the hero house. Um, so we did have a lot of flexibility of where we wanted the houses to go and uh, making that work for the blocking. But even then there were problems to solve because there's a, uh, a mountain in the background that had to be blocked that doesn't look like Detroit, it looks like Bulgaria. We had, uh, <laughs> there was a building that was kind of adjacent to this road and we had to make sure that building was covered appropriately. And to just make it feel dense enough from all the angles given a limited number of houses. Uh, otherwise you'd just, just see into the empty field uh, behind it. So uh, I think we had a lot uh, to work with, uh, at least from where I'm coming from, doing uh, lower budget indie movies, and uh, and it still felt like oh we're we're problem solving all the time trying to make it work. And then there's um, a uh, I'm trying to decide if this would be giving it away again. I think it is in the trailer. There's uh, a moment where you see the same house but at a different time period, um, and that street had to get completely redone to be the flashback. Mm. Um, so we. Uh, paved over the street uh, to make it look like it was a freshly paved street as opposed to sort of crumbling concrete. Um, and uh, things like that sort of helped uh, sell that it was, uh, I don't know, back in time, <laughs> freshly <laughs> made. Um, yeah, so. Well, I mean, just even thinking about, because when Mike was talking about big budget, low budget, because again, I look at something like Eyes of My Mother, which is, you know, again, the internet, you believe $300,000 you you made that look no way like a three hundred thousand. That I I, I look. I don't mean to. This, it's one of these things. Like I don't mean to like have people on the show and like you know just kind of 
throw praise at them and all this other stuff. But like, man, how do you, I don't understand how you make that film and just like, that's, that's like a, a mic drop and be like, how does not everybody in the world just call you after the way <laughs> that thing looked and be like, sign them up right now. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I was, uh, I got a lot of calls, but mostly for horror movies. Um, and, uh, and I like horror movies, but I'd also like to do other things. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think in terms of stretching a small budget and making it look like more than it is, I think it's being ambitious within certain confines, right? Like that film takes place at one house. So we had the house that wasn't very expensive. And then it's just like, let's go nuts and in this one house um, and take our time and do everything at kind of a, a slow pace so that we can really get, uh, I don't know, milk every moment and make it, make it work and make the adjustments, have the time to tweak to sweeten the deal every single shot. Um, so that, that was super helpful. Um, and then I think on top of that, you know, on a, when you're, we were kind of recently out of film school and pulling a lot of favors and uh, getting a lot of equipment at severe discounts. And, uh, you know, I think that helps a lot as well. You know, I don't think that, I don't think me and the same people could make that movie for that budget today. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it would, nobody would be down for it. Um, and I think there's just uh, something kind of special about that moment right after you graduate where you're like, Oh, we can, do anything and uh, it doesn't have to be expensive. Um, but people like their creepy comforts, so. <laughs> but you know, it's what, what, what amazes me also about is not just how beautiful it looks, not just brilliant black and white, because again, there's only so many things modern times that have done black and white justice the way that as my mother does. And I'm talking about stuff like Deacons with uh, the man who wasn't there, you know, it's like only beautiful. so many people have done something so be beautiful in this modern era with that stuff, but it looked so European. Ah. <laughs> and in more ways than just like the setting. I mean, like it had a very European feel to me, which I think was brilliant. And I'm just amazed that I am still amazed that you were able to do it. That's all I'm saying. Thank you. Yeah, I wish I could put my finger on what made it feel that way, but you're totally right. Um, yeah, I don't really know how, how or where that came from. Maybe some of the influences that Nick and I talked about beforehand, but um, it was, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, uh, something special. <laughs> It's also just another one of those things where it's so easy for anybody to screw it up because anybody can just say, oh, I want it to look black and white. And I mean, cool, but black and white film looks different than black and white on digital. And yeah, yeah. even then there's just, a person has to understand the visual language like yourself that just knows what makes black and white tick because this is just absolutely gorgeous in the way that it depicts every image and like the shadows are crisp and and just right especially in those barn scenes thank you yeah and, you know in less oh, go on well i was gonna say i feel like the uh, the thing i realized early on is that black and white loves contrast and i was coming from shooting a lot of color stuff and shoot uh having big soft sources and i was like well i don't really need the light to be big and soft anymore i can just do smaller hard sources and get away with it and um you know you'd like shine the sun through uh through a window and it's like great and it's like i don't need to mess with the color it was kind of easy actually because uh, i it was a lot less work to set up any of the lights because we could just single source set up a light and it looked uh contrasty right um that that kind of helped and then I, I owe a lot also to our colorist sam bailey who i've continued to work with and he also did the color for barbarian um and he really uh took a lot from some of the references that Nick and I brought uh, black and white photography, like silver gelatin prints, trying to get that um, sort of sparkle in the midtones and creating contrast just within uh, the, the detail there. Um, so he pulled a lot out of it. And then we also shot knowing it was gonna be in black and white, but recorded in color. And that gave us a lot of flexibility in the color grid as well, where we could um, choose objects or colors on set that would stand out from the background so that they could be easily grabbed in the color grade and then adjust their brightness values and create a lot of contrast that way. Mm -hmm. So the, the couch in the living room is like a ridiculous bright orange couch that you would never see in a space, but like, because it's so different from any of the other colors around, you can just grab it and change it. Um, there's a dress that she wears that's like a striped dress. And I think it, uh, it was like a lime green and white instead of black and white, but that's basically chroma key so you could just like grab the green and make it really dark or make it less dark and kind of dial in contrast that way and make pops of of uh of contrast throughout the image there 
and then that whole idea kind of came from uh, Nebraska, which came out uh, a year or two before that. I read an American Cinematographer article about it, and it was like uh, they were talking about um, uh, they traveling across the country. There are these like barns and houses and things that they would see uh, and want to shoot at, but uh, they would paint the whole house like a bright red. And uh, that's so different from the blue sky and the green grass around that they could just in post say, okay, this house, what, whatever color we want it to be whatever, or whatever brightness value we want it to be, uh, we can choose and create contrast, make it pop in, mm. in any way uh, in post. So um, there was kind of a, an intentionality that went into that, that set us up for success at the end to create contrast the whole time. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to see a full color cut of this movie just to see how how it would look. In, in, I I mean I it's <laughs> just a comparative thing. I I still love the black yeah. and white. Black and white was the way to go with this, and I would never right. like go against the the artistic vision that was obviously implemented because that's that's the plan. That's how everything was crafted. Yeah. But I would love to just contrast like these scenes of of. Uh, caring for the the eyeless and voiceless victims, and a woman's wearing a lime green dress, and it's a bright red barn, and it's like yeah. it, it almost makes me think of uh, uh, Ty West's Pearl that's coming up. That oh, yeah. uh, just the colors that and and the detail the details like sort of the old Hollywood look that he's got layered on that movie, and then there's gonna be a lot of bloodletting and people exploding, and yeah. that's something that black and white does kind of lend itself to. Yeah, totally. And, and I, I, you know, having looked at some of the things in color, it is strange. And the, the lighting, uh, we could choose any color for the light, too. Uh, mm -hmm. We didn't really take advantage of that too much in terms of creating color separation uh, between foreground and background. But you could do that. You could say, like, we light the foreground with tungsten light and the background with daylight or just totally different gels. You could, you know, grab those and, and move them around. But it made it easier for us. Again, just a step less that we had to do in the work for lighting of gels. Or um, in that time, it was all Kino flows. We didn't have LEDs, so it was uh, we didn't have to worry about changing the the tungsten or daylight bulbs. Um, and we just mixed and matched them for whatever we had available. You could use a tungsten light to be daylight, just shine a leco through the through the window instead of putting a Joker in and. Um, yeah, we kind of, I think we saved a lot of money that way um, by using a lot of tungsten lights where we would have otherwise use daylight sources. So. It's, you know, you mentioned it before, you said you got a lot of calls for people wanting to make horror films. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you feel or if, you, if you've ever thought there was this weird stigma that, you know, even though I, I created this beautiful, amazing looking film, that uh, it's, it's not going to pull in those other people or people don't give enough credit to something that could be a something that's beautiful just because it is horror or genre. Yeah, pe people do sort of have that impression. You're absolutely right. But I, I feel like I've, um, I've, I have felt a little pigeonholed, but I also have looked back and been like, you know, these are great films that I'm really proud of. And I never approached them like a horror movie. It was always an approach of, let's just make a movie that tells this story. And some of those elements might be horrifying. Yeah. And that's great if we can disturb somebody. The, uh, if we can affect somebody, then, then that's the goal, right? It doesn't really matter how that is. Um, and I think uh, as I look back on the career so far, and as I continue, I compare to all of the cinematographers that I look up to, and a lot of them talk about, um, you know, spending the first 10 years of their career shooting news or documentaries or, um, or comedies or something kind of specific, um, and some of them horror movies. And if I can, you know, 20, 30 years from now, look back and say, well, the first 10 years of my career was all horror movies. Great. That's awesome. What a blessing. Um, so I, I, I don't mind it at this point. And I, but I look for scripts that aren't just horror films. Yeah. I feel like I've read a lot of scripts that uh, are horror movies and it, it just feels like a trope that's been played out and I can't really do anything with that. I feel like there's a, a lack of innovation just in the storytelling that's gonna lead to a lack of innovation in, in the physicality of shooting it. Um, so whenever I read a, a genre bending script, that's exciting to me where it's not just horror, it's not just comedy, it's not something that we've seen before. It's something new and original and um, I don't know, I'm drawn to that material, so. But is there ever a twinge a little bit? Because I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm originally thinking about the idea that 
thinking about the budget of being a low budget, like it makes us be more innovative. Is yeah. there another part of that that thinks that like, yes, I may have seen this a thousand times before, but maybe I can do something different with it, even if the generic script is quote unquote generic. Yeah, and I think that's why you know I'll, I'll usually meet with the director uh, on any script just to just to get to know what their vision is and what their personality is, and if they're bringing a lot to it and something really unexpected or have an idea that I really didn't see coming. That's super exciting to me. Um, so, uh, kind of silly example from the past, I guess, is a, a student film I shot um, called Caught, where uh, the film is about. Uh, uh, Pokemon cards being traded on the black market at a, uh, a middle school. Brilliant concept. I was I was pretty excited about it as is. And when I read the script, I was like, oh, this is like kind of like an anime. It read like that. I was like, oh, it's going to be uh, these sort of silly action shots of like people flying through the air and mm -hmm. uh, it should feel animated somehow. And uh, the director was like, no, I want to do it like The Born Identity and have it feel like a spy action movie. And that wasn't what I got from the script at all. But I was like, whoa, that's totally different. Not that the, the script was unoriginal to begin with, but that added a lot to it and, and really shaped, okay, let's do something that I wasn't expecting at all um, from reading it. And uh, I don't know, I think it was a, a pretty special film as a result. So whenever I meet a director who's got something like that, where it's totally out of left field, I'm totally excited about it and, and looking to explore it a little further. I need to find this short now, because that sounds <laughs> fantastic. It is, it's fun. Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, low budget student film and I'm I, I like I'm a little bit ashamed of my work on it but we shot it so fast and there's so many shots in the movie and it's like it looks great you know you don't you don't think about that and Bruce the director actually he uh pointed out to me over and over again in prep he when we watched the Bourne Identity and all the Bourne movies they don't look great there's not like good lighting in, in any of those movies it's just the lights are on and they shoot a lot of shots so we did that and it looked great <laughs> It I, is it's just, I'm not saying it's not true or not, but I just love the idea of the lights are on, let's shoot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it took me a while to adjust to that. And I kept kind of making the mistake early on in, the, in that shoot, it was only 10 days, but like the first couple of days I was like trying to do something and trying to light it. And he was like, it's just gonna be inconsistent. We don't have the time later on for the lighting to be as good as you want it to be. So don't try now because then this is gonna stand out and look weird. Uh, and it's just gonna be better if we have a more consistent film. And I've, I've taken that to heart as advice in general, like it hit uh, hitting consistency in a film or co cohesion in a film is much more important than a, um, aiming for a particular style. And I've been lucky enough to aim for a style and also have that cohesion. But uh, but the the kind of consistency is that has to be the priority. Otherwise, people are going to feel like they're getting jerked around visually and don't know what what this movie is about visually. What is the, the concept here? So. Yeah, there's always that signature that has to be there. And yeah. going back to Eyes of My Mother, I really loved the artful, just some of the kills are so artfully shown, like both the the action itself or the consequence that you see afterwards. Like the one shot that really stuck out to me is when Charlie gets free and is sort of roaming around outside and we're watching through this window yeah. And she's slowly getting into him. And then at a certain point, it just cuts to she's embracing him and then stabbing him. Yeah. And just, I, you know what's happening. You know what's going to happen. It's basically that point in a horror movie where the killer and the prey are at it. And it's like, okay, when is this happening? But you're so engrossed in watching how it's happening that you just kind of lose track. And then it just shifts to that shot. Yeah. And I really just appreciated that, just that beauty. Like, this is a beautiful, intimate film about a maladjusted woman who happens to have murder as a hobby. Right. That's a great way to look at it. Instead <laughs> of a movie about a murderer, it's, yeah, just this woman who's having some trouble. She happens to murder some people. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I love that oh, shot, too. Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's my favorite shot in the film, for sure. And uh, that those two shots, that sequence, was in the short film that we made as sort of a proof of concept for the movie, uh, like, a year earlier. Uh, so in a different location, but with a with a window and you know same sort of killing action and that same cut from the looking through the window to uh, to the stabbing close up uh, outside, um, and it worked so well in the original. We were like, oh, we got to do that again wherever the house is, wherever it is, we have to do that. Um, and it also kind of speaks to the one of the visual concepts in the film, which was to always have a very wide and a very tight of 
of the action. There's not a lot of medium shots in the movie. So we tried to uh, just create contrast there by having you know th these kind of bouncing back and forth between very wide, very close, um, and limiting the coverage that way. Without a lot of dialogue, it, it made it easy too, because there wasn't dialogue coverage that needed to happen. So. Oh yeah, just like that beautiful overhead shot that the movie has, like close That's to. That's what I'm gonna go to. <laughs> well, I'm gonna let you take it because I don't want to overset. But seriously, that is just artful and Matthew's going to go in more into well, well I guess before you before you talk about it I guess because that's the kind of thing where like yes if I was you know my teenage self in the 90s even as technology was getting further along the time I think oh I just know it's a crane or whatever it is but now it's like well could it be a drone will, will drone shots let you be that still I don't, I don't know how they even though it's obvious how they could pull it off how do you pull it off yeah, well, I mean, which one? There's a lot of overheads in the movie. <laughs> oh, well, the very beginning, the very beginning when he gets out of the truck to run to her. Oh, and on he, the road, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was, that was me, a that's what I was thinking of, at least. Yeah, that, that was a drone. We had uh, had actually planned to do a more complicated move, uh, landing in that high angle position, but the move just wasn't really working out that well. And this was uh, a kind of early drone technology, and there was some stabilization that we had to do in post and we had to shoot it with a different camera. So there was some effects to, uh, added to make it look a little bit anamorphic. There's some like distortion and um, bending and stretching of the frame on the edges to like keep it in the same uh, optical world, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it was surprisingly still, I mean, the drones have amazing stabilization and the higher you go, the less reference you have for that stability anyway. So um, you can really get away with a lot. It, probably wasn't that windy that day either um but uh the the concept for that moment and and many of the overheads in the film come from the uh the main character's mother dying early in the film and it's it's supposed to be her perspective looking down on her daughter so she's like up you know dead in the heavens and looking down and um kind of the god's eye view i guess because uh, there's also a fair amount of religious uh, symbolism throughout that film and um Kind of taking that perspective was her mother so yeah for just for just another yeah for those who never kind of get into the idea that there are multiple ways to take the eyes of my mother yes uh, as for what it means in the movie exactly yes and uh fun fact about the movie and it's funny you mentioned all the the killing moments in particular uh each of the the bodies that you see she disposes of bodies a few times in the movie or the aftermaths of deaths those were originally shot for different characters' bodies. Like, uh, I'm trying to explain this, but the, there was a big change in the edit um, and it wasn't as scripted. So like, we would shoot uh, the, there's like blood on the floor that she's cleaning up. And I think it, it was a long time ago that I saw it, but um, the, the blood was originally shot, supposed to be uh, the girl that she takes home from the bar. And then, but the way it's edited, it looks like it's her mother's blood that she's cleaning up. Mm. Um, or uh, that doesn't make sense because of her age, but I, I, I can understand what you mean, uh, though. Absolutely, yeah. Or there's like the the uh, chunks of meat that she's putting in the refrigerator, and there was uh, a question. Oh, and then that was reversed. Actually, I forgot about that one. That uh, I think I think when we shot it, she was taking out the the pieces of meat from the refrigerator to kind of imply that maybe she was eating it or preparing it as a meal. And then the way it's edited, it's a different person's body. And then also it was put in, putting into the refrigerator, like she's just killed them and is storing mm -hmm. the meat instead. So uh, a lot was done to kind of mess with um, when things take place in the film. And I think the edit is much stronger for it. And a lot of the, a lot of what we shot isn't in there, um, but it's, uh, it makes the story that much better. So uh, I'm kind of, I was excited and, and surprised by the edit when I saw that. So, but, but, but you're saying though, a lot of that was not necessarily all of it, but a lot of it was intentionally done that way. No, no, it was, it was just literally we, just, okay. Yeah. We did, we shot it to be one thing. And then they were like, oh, well, we can actually take this shot and put it somewhere else Got it. because she doesn't change that much. It's kind of hard to tell when things are happening in the film anyway. Um, so there was a lot of flexibility to, to mess with that. And, and without, uh, without a lot of dialogue, there was no references to when something's happening or what event has just taken place. So. So now that you mentioned that, I have a question about the ending because yeah. this is so abrupt. And yes. it's like, just out of nowhere, like, boom, done. So was there more of an ending filmed and then it was an editing choice to sort of end it at that point? Or was it always going to be just that sort of brick through the plate glass window ending? 
I think, I mean, that was the final scene, if I remember correctly, in the script, but there was a little bit more of it that we shot, just like uh, the the more suspenseful, like the cops are coming and she's in the house and like holding the child. And um, I think we did a, I think we shot her getting shot in the, in the room, something like that. Um, I know we did like a blood gag that isn't in there, um, but uh, yeah, that was, I think that was supposed to be the end of the film. There was also, the opening scene with the the woman escaping, I think it, it revisits. It's been so long since I've seen it, but she, <laughs> I think it revisits that later in the film again. So it's sort of like a cold open, and you remember it. Um, I think that was supposed to be the very final scene of the movie, um, like after she gets killed in the house. Uh, it maybe cuts to that, but just a shuffle of those two, and that overhead of the house kind of uh, seal the deal. And I think that overhead, actually, now that I think about it that overhead might have been designed for a different uh, a different scene. And I know the cop lights were added, the, the police lights were added as a visual effect. So that overhead, I think was just an establishing shot that we got at some point when we had a drone there. Um, and there wasn't a specific intention for that to be, uh, you know, in that moment, but it works well. Good bookend too. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You know, just to, you know, we're gonna have to let you go soon. So just to kind of close yeah. things off, I, I'm always very interested, especially with again, you have more than enough work under your belt, but you're still young and 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 you know, just you know, in, in terms of the the way Hollywood has been early on in your career. Yeah. And I'm wondering where you feel that I just feel that there's 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 a, a certain idea of depth and image or or the idea of, of, of what really makes a good frame compared to like, I can just go out and shoot it now. And I'm wondering if there's a, you feel there's a lot of people that are just lost on what made things great compared to what I could just do now. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and I think um, it, it kind of boils down to uh, preparation and intention for me. And I feel like there's a, a lot more there are a lot more filmmakers today than there used to be who would go out and uh, shoot, 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 gather a lot of footage and redefine it, find a new thing in the edit, which I guess I'm, you know, we did that in, on eyes, but uh, with the redefining uh, the story, but it was not so much uh, a kind of hose it down with coverage thing. And it was each shot did have its intention and uh, was planned very meticulously to do a certain thing in that moment. Um, and I approach every film like that with a, a kind of an eye towards the edit and trying to decide. And Eyes of My Mother really does stand apart uh, from a lot of the other films that I've shot where we do plan it all and the edit is not surprising at all. And it looks, it's cut exactly the way that we thought it would be cut. And that's really satisfying to, to think like, well, we thought that this shot was gonna cut exactly this shot in this moment and that cut works like that's that's kind of sweet and i think that part of cinematography is um i don't think it's getting lost i wouldn't say that i think there's some people who focus on that and some people who don't um and the uh, I, I have a lot of respect for the people who don't focus on that and have an ability to find uh find something in the moment and improvise and make something work with what's there um it's not how i approach it but uh so it's hard for me to like picture going into that and every time I hear from crew members like, oh, I uh, work with other DPs who don't have a shot list or we, you know, there's sort of a shot list, but it's not as specific as uh, I do really in-depth shot lists and, and photo boards. And we know exactly what lens we're going to be on, where the camera's going to be for every shot, ideally. Fingers crossed if we have time and prep. Um, and uh, hearing about other people doing that just stresses me out. Like, I don't know what I would do on set, like without a plan, like, oh God, we have to come up with everything on the day with everybody watching, like trying to have that creative back and forth and collaboration with the director while the crew is there, while the actors are there, that sounds horrible and stressful. So, um, but some people can pull magic out of that and and maybe that's not for me. Uh, I just, just wrapped a documentary and that's been a totally different world for me where I had to do a lot of that and uh, did find some great moments and I feel really good about it, but it, uh, it would have maybe been less stressful if we had not a plan, you know? Um, so uh, I guess, I don't know, does that kind of answer your question the way? Uh, hey, anything answers my question, that? really. You know, I just want, I'm, I'm just here to learn. Okay, cool, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's, yeah, that's just how I think about things, I guess. And uh, I think that uh, I, I, in terms of the, the age of the average filmmaker 
being younger maybe. Um, I think there's uh, something that you learn when you shoot film in film school or when you're first starting out and especially having to edit film on Steambex that I found really valuable uh, in my film school days and uh, try to carry that intention to it where every shot has to serve a purpose. You don't have that time in the edit or flexibility in the edit to um, keep messing around and changing it. It's just going to damage the, the negative or the, the positive. And uh, people who haven't had that experience, I, I see um, approaching things a little differently. Um, where you, they grew up with uh, nonlinear editing, uh, you know, and I did as well. But like, just doing yeah. it on the on the Steambacks uh, forces you to think of things a different way. So I got I got lucky enough to, to actually be able to do it myself uh, in, early on in, in in New York Film Academy stuff. So I'm like, yeah, it, it's I, I mean, look, I'm not making films at this point, but like the fact that. I had that opportunity makes me feel so much happier than anything else yeah. in the world. Does it affect the way that you think about movies when you watch them or when you were making movies, how, how you approach things? I, no, I wouldn't say it makes, I, I'm more so the idea that, and this is something that I always forget about until I watch something. Cause I, you know, like um, we got, we constantly talk about how eventually we're going to do an episode on Putney Swope as a, a good, for instance. On what, sir? Putney Swope, uh, okay. Robert Downey Sr. Uh, comedy from 1969. Cool. And that. it's something that you put on and you go like, this is a comedy. And, you know, like, I, I, I don't know about much of how, you know, his, his um, behind the scenes, the way he wanted to make movies. But like, I look at it, I'm like, this is gorgeous. And this is like, it's a comedy that has camera movements that should not be in a comedy. And I'm like, and then I look at something that's made even like in the mid 90s, late 90s. I'm like, it's got, it's, it's flat. It's got nothing to it. And it's like, how come a film that had no budget, you know, that is again, just this like raucous nonsensical comedy can be so cinematically versatile and yeah. something that had a budget is just, eh, thanks. Yeah. That's the way, you know, it's, it's more so less the experience of I had doing it than watching these things and, and, and right. kind of reacting that way. Makes sense. Well, hopefully if you, I don't know if you've seen The Climb, which is another movie I shot uh, a couple of years ago, that uh, is a comedy and hopefully has a lot uh, going on with the camera movement. Um, I, I encourage you to check that out. It's yeah. uh, maybe speaks to what you're talking about in, in reaching back uh, historically to cinema of the past. So um, yeah, I think you'd enjoy that. It really is sad though, because it, it comedy is, I guess it's just gonna drop back to the whole comedy horror genre thing again, where those are two genres that it almost feels like some approach it with, okay, we have to focus on the gags or we have to focus on the kills. And there's so much focus put into crafting everything around those that something as simple as the visual approach gets lost because some of the people that you know have these projects in their hands are like oh no one's going to pay attention to that what they're really going to pay attention to is the blood that's trickling out of the neck and they're not going to look at oh well this is really well framed and i'm more disturbed that this looks more like a painting than just oh no someone got stabbed next scare please right right exactly and i, I think that's uh but that's the, what the art of cinematography is is to like make people feel a thing without thinking about the thing so if I can, you know, have somebody have have a feeling that wow, there was something special and elevated about a moment, but I can't put my finger on it. Great, that's I've succeeded. You know, I don't want them to to be processing that too much, right? And draw attention away from the the kill or the scare, and just you know have that pure feeling. But but if they can walk away looking back and say, oh, there was something about that, that's that's great. That's a success. Zach, thank you so much for joining us, and. Uh... Yeah wait to see barbarian <laughs> like, i i am so I, I am i am seriously upset that this is one of those times where i'm seriously upset i didn't get to see the film beforehand <laughs> sorry well let me know uh when you do see it i'd love to hear your thoughts when the time comes totally thanks again have a good one thanks guys have a good day. Right. bye thank you zach oh that that man <laughs> All right, it's just you know, we're just gonna break out the the toy box. You know, he's very giving. He's blah, 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 but he really is like he's one of those prime Obi Reynolds guests. And plus, yeah. I love having tech and craft people on here because there is there's just such very interesting discussions, especially talking about how they they shot Eyes of My Mother, and even to a certain extent, even though we can't really go too much into mm -hmm. it, how they were shooting Barbarian. I mean, I thought I was amped for this movie now, but 
just even the way that he's like, oh, I don't know what, I don't know what I can tell you guys. I don't know. I, I may just have to tap dance around this. It's like that. I, I love when people can, can do that and make it even more intriguing. It's like, no, damn it. I do want to know, but I want to see this movie for myself, especially because I just saw a tweet the other day. Edgar Wright. Uh, yes. Edgar Wright. Oh, Edgar I Wright. Saw it, yeah. Oh, well, look, this is the thing. Like there's one thing again, Read the description if you were if you weren't sure about the time code you because you you may have heard it already if you got this far but just in case you skip past it and you got this far there was one thing that was mentioned that if you haven't seen the movie if I haven't seen the movie my guys whatever it is when he says it it's something that you could easily think could happen in any movie could just be something that's part of what it, I, I'm not gonna say it specifically because I don't in case you skip past it, I don't want to say it but I can see where it, it may not be quote-unquote spoiler or twisty or anything whatsoever but that being said the way he said it made me think that it was so, so. It, you know it's it's really hard especially when you haven't seen a movie we didn't get to see the movie prior to the recording of the show yeah it's, it's it's one of those it's one of those strange uh very very rare instances but it happened yeah and it's just um, a busy time like i'm not blaming anybody it's like no oh yeah no yeah absolutely yeah no it's not like somebody yeah. like was like was like no you can't do this yeah there's been screenings here and there but it's just like you don't make Climbing it is everything until it's like oh wait a minute we have this and it's like uh <laughs> i don't have a local screening before then um or i can't make the one before then sorry what I find, I, and so with that, I'm, I'm going to go straight into talking about the eyes of my mother. And I know oh, I mentioned it to, to Zach, and I know I've talked about it. And this is one of those things where, like, I'm not trying to take anything away from the writer-director, Nicholas Pesci, uh, which was his first film as well for, for feature length. You know, who he went on to do the uh, the recent version of The the Grudge, if, no, if, nobody, if nobody was aware. But... Um, mm -hmm. I know it's his story. He wrote it. There was some great, like, you know, there's some great things in there from, from the actors and everything like that. But this movie does not do anything without the way it looks. No, this no, movie no, no, no. is the cinematography, honestly. And uh, again, not trying to take anything away from anybody else involved with the film at all. Well, no, the whole thing is there's a very, sim there's a simplicity to this story. It's not anything that's over. There's no real twist to the film. The twist is that you're slowly, learning about this young woman's life well, and that's I mean, like the most twisty it gets and, and but there i mean you could consider not a twist but you could consider there are multiple ways to tie the title into the film you know with the idea of like those the overhead shots being like the mother looking down on what's been going on or you know like either the other thing and, you know i'm not gonna go into all of it because people who haven't seen it yet it would be good to like have them watch it and come up with their own uh, theories before they listen to everything we say even though that's what we do uh talk about these things and, and theorize about them um but th there is more to it than just i guess the story in a lot of ways but yeah the story is just it's it's not a character study but it is a character study you know no yeah i mean again uh, uh francisca's uh francisca's uh i don't know how they pronounce it <laughs> uh, uh, francisca's life is just told through like these these vignettes like there's i think three or four i think there's three parts i think there's three parts it's, it's I funny i i've just rewatched it and i can't even remember at this point i think it was mother father and family yeah and again this is just i'm i'm kind of surprised how this is barely like this is a 77 minute film it doesn't feel like it and in the best way possible because again the story's simple but there is such depth that is carried off and how it's told and how it's shot. And just that whole story about how there's these like outrageous colors that you have to shoot in for black and white in order to make it look really good. Like I still want to see at least images of like the carnage with a lime green dress, but at the yeah. same time, it's not black and white. I don't see it happening any other way. And, you know, and it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm not saying it's something that's new and yet they weren't doing in the past, but I do wonder going back to again that idea of you know learning the basics or or whether you you're not didn't know and you're trying to figure it out this idea of what would have been different if they shot it straight to black and white instead of having to convert it you know granted you're still going to do the bright colors on the actual set but the question being is like 
how is it going to affect the way you light it when you shoot it straight for black and white instead of doing the conversion? Well, yeah, I mean, that's you even look at uh, something I remember from a couple of years back is when they were talking about Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. And I know he was talking about how they were shooting a native like 120 frames per second 4K 3D. And the way they had to light things was they had to over they had to light things so bright because of the 3D process. Yeah. It's I thought that's funny. That's a movie that I remember because uh, that was the New York Film Festival that year, and I, I never went yeah. to the screening and I never saw it after. <laughs> I'm just really sad that they dial it down to 60 frames per second for the home uh, video because the whole thing is, and Ang Lee was a big subscriber of this. It's like the you have to push it to 120. Otherwise, if you stay in the 48 and 60 frame, it just looks weird. That's when you get the soap opera effect. I don't, I don't like any any high frame rate stuff. I hate it all. What I've seen. Me. You call it the soap opera effect. I call it the the actors sliding everywhere effect. <laughs> it's so distasteful. So I'm looking. I'm hoping 120 frames per second, 4K 3D for Avatar 2. I'm 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 ready for that. I'm already. I'm not going to go into too much of this because I I don't under. I, I look the experience. If you want to talk about watching Avatar in 3D when it was in the theater, different story. Avatar's not a good movie. I'm sorry. Story and all that other stuff. And and I will give my my I will give my nitpicky complaint right now. If if you have if no if you Mike if you never heard it before if no the listeners have never heard it before. My nitpicky complaint about Avatar, amongst everything else, there's tons of stuff, but here's my, here's the one that kills me the most. Uh, Stephen Lang, I can't remember the general's name. Art. I don't know why I remember that. Besides the fact that Stephen Lang is just fucking awesome. Send Sam Worthington. I don't remember his character's name. Jake Sully. How do I remember this? His purpose for sending him in was very specifically, but amongst many things, he's very specifically asked for blueprints or inner working of understanding of their base because he wanted to destroy it their base is a tree you have missiles you don't need blueprints of a tree to blow it up with your missiles but if you don't know what that tree is made of and you don't know what that tree hides it's made of wood you still need that information i'm sorry no he he does not need that information the blueprints of of, of a tree to, to, to blow it up you can't defend it. I'm sorry. I know you're trying, but you can't. Anyway, eyes on my mother. <laughs> I'm just trying for fun. I mean, I'm okay with Avatar. I think it's more of a visual experience than anything else. And I still kind of wish they would have just done like a, a, a faux documentary of like exploring these planets versus, you know, dances with Pocahontas. But yeah, po- yeah. Pocahontas amongst m- many other different things as well. That's the that's the thing. So many, one, people, one person will say Pocahontas, the other person will say... Uh, Whatever the other, only the last rainforest. Yeah, I mean, which I mean, which is also technically Pocahontas is the idea, but yeah, one person connects it to one thing, and that's where it goes. Anyway, eyes of my mother. <laughs> I, I even lost myself there. Sorry, everybody. But yeah, Why no, don't you be sorry to everyone. We're giving them something to listen to here. But eyes of my mother is that it's that it's that type of thing. It's so goddamn gorgeous that and I wonder if there are important people and i'm not talking about you know like producers or money men or like that like even like high-end directors that you know like they they turn their nose at like certain things like i'm not gonna watch a movie uh the you know i saw the cover who cares if it looks beautiful and it's like but no look at what he did it's insane it's it's just such a deliberately staged and shot and told film that Again, 77 minutes, I'm sitting there enthralled by the thing and I'm enjoying just where this is going and even just how far the carnage goes and how selective the carnage is because it is a bloody film. It is a gory film, Mm -hmm. but it's not something that goes overboard with either of those things. It's just enough. And then just with some of the visual language, it like that, again, that shot through the window where we're watching Francisca hunting her prey and then out of nowhere cut to the intimate like her stabbing the man while she's holding him yeah you know you just reminded me the one thing i totally forgot to ask which is the the more the most obvious thing and i just totally forgot to ask him about the idea of was it done in black and white to help with the gore because 
there are certain things that maybe certain people take easier when it's black and white compared to color, even though it's gory. And I'm wondering if that fed into the decision to do it. Well, also just the MPA is like, literally there were trailers where the blood color is changed. Like Resident Evil back in 2002 changed the blood color to blue because they had to for the MPA. Yeah. And that's another thing where it's like, if you shoot it in black and white, you might be able to cheat it a little bit. And just show a whole bunch of other yeah. fucking stuff for your R rating. I mean, you get close. You get you know, you know whether or not there's there's blood or anything like that too. Just like certain things when you see them close up, mm. it's like you know. I mean, like you go back to the. Why am I now forgetting the name of the movie? The very early nineteen thirties uh, eye slit. Um, oh, um, I'm in Andalou. I can't remember the name all of a sudden. Is that I don't know. It's movie Bunuel. I, I I think it's Unchien Andalou. Let me let yeah. me remember, because if I remember this correctly, those film courses paid off. <laughs> because I had a film course in college. I had two film courses. One of them was like the history of the film, where basically it took like decade by decade we got to watch like a big movie mm. on like five millimeter if we could, or on like DVD or VHS if we had to. And then the second film class I took was Select Studies Hitchcock and Bunuel. There, there you go. Perfect. I won't interrupt your your your, your searching. This is Michael. This is the Michael searching music. Yep, it was There you go. Which that is a oh wow that I remember seeing that for the first time and that was just such a again that's a jarring shot. I mean, it was it was it was it was, it was technically real right? It was an animal's eye, right? When like when they got the close animal's eye, yeah, because it yeah. was a close up shot. It was like Where a goat. It was like a goat or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still it's still kind of ew, but you know it's like the idea. It's it's the tension of just seeing it even like get close. I mean, and then of course there was was in was it in zombie where they did like a more modern well seventy ish modern version, I think I can't remember, the uh-huh. Italian zombie that is. Z o m b i. Yeah. The uh, oh, who was that? Anyway. With all that being said, now's your chance to go buy your ticket. That's right, because you may very well be listening to this way before Barbarian comes out. So go buy your ticket to see Barbarian on opening weekend. Listen to everybody that's seen it so far. Listen to Edgar Wright. And Always listen to my mother off your overdue rentals list. It's available on Tubi right now if you want to watch it. Or Pluto TV if you don't mind. Well, both of them are going to have ads. But you know what? Tubi and Pluto are just... If it wasn't for those platforms, I I think some of these movies would still be overdue. And they're just really good at keeping things like this fresh. I'm going to say two things about Tubi, actually. Because I I don't actually watch it that much because I'm just so all over the place. But it is a place for horror fans. They got a lot of horror films on Tubi. But Tubi's the one app of this kind that has ads. Forget about Pluto. Pluto does it too, but it's much more Tubi. Definitely not YouTube. The ads are actually put in the places they were meant to be for broadcast. If it was a television I show, noticed. it's actually during the commercial break. If it's a movie, it's where it would have cut when they when they when they made the edits for TV back when that was how you'd watch it. And it's so actually refreshing to actually have the ads come at the proper places. And they're not too many of them, but to have them come at the right places is nice is a nice thing. Oh yeah, like even watching, like while watching The Eyes of My Mother, it was like I noticed the ads were not very intrusive and they did have like, well, they weren't TV versions that specifically had the gaps in there. It still came at the right time. Yep. And come back and it was very crisp. And it's like, you know what? If you can master that, I don't mind your free ad supported uh, streaming. Yeah, they somehow seem to have an actual person who has gone through everything and said, it should go there, it should go there. Whether or not somebody time-coded them when they're made, uh, thinking the idea of broadcast television so they know where to put it, it's just done right. But go and watch The Eyes of My Mother. Go buy your ticket for Barbarian. Mike, if people need to find us, where can they find us? Well, when we're not busy keeping the farmhouse nice and stocked with our kill of the day, uh, that is not admissible by any means in court um you can find us on on social media where we actually are killing it on tiktok and instagram at overdue rental show on twitter 
at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And if you want to email us suggestions, love letters, discussions about whether or not this movie ends too abruptly, and I will be welcome to those discussions, you can email us at OverdueRentals at gmail.com. But while you're on their internet and not at some secluded farmhouse in black and white, there's a bunch of other things you can do to really help us out at the show here because we like you. We like you listening to us. We want to know that you are listening to us and we want to know what you want to hear. So in addition to emailing us, and you can bump up our metrics by continuing to find our back catalog of episodes. We are at episode 60 right now, if I read correctly. And if not, then we're in the 60s. But you can find all those other wonderful episodes uh, wherever you ethically source your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, uh, Audible. Um, wherever you want to listen to a podcast, we're probably there. And again, you could pro- you could listen to an episode a week at this point and have a little over a year's worth of entertainment. But why delay things? Like, look, it's we're about to get into the Halloween season, and while we don't have sixty episodes of horror films, uh, we could probably start at this point so that way next year it's like, hey, while you keep up with our current episodes, why don't you do you know sixty <laughs> episodes? I don't know. Point is, wherever you find your podcasts, we're gonna be there. And while you're at it, while you're on this big internet goose chase, we would like you to rate, review, and subscribe so the rental counter can stay open and the milk duds don't have to be almost expired. But I will say this, does a milk dud ever truly expire? I don't think so. I but... don't have milk duds, so I can't, I can't answer that. Oh, well, what's your, what's your candy of choice? Well, I don't know. I, I like a lot of different candies, man. I don't have one of choice, particularly. If you're gonna make me go with chocolate in a movie theater, it would be goobers. Goobers aren't bad. No, chocolate covered ra- chocolate covered peanuts are delicious, just mm-hmm. like raisins. That's chocolate covered raisins. But anyway, friends, family, listeners, we are going to send you off with a hearty blah bye.